conversation coming your way today. Um, it's almost one of those things that probably will be like a mashup, right? It'll probably end up being like multiple things because we pull stuff out and we're like, we should talk about this. Oh my gosh, we should talk about this. And then it'll all end up being like a big conversation sandwich mm-hmm. with all different kinds of things on it. So conversations over sandwiches are the best. <laughs> I wish I had one. Sandwiches with conversation. So, um, yeah, some things we did a live uh, on our Quantum Shit Show page last night. It was great. We got to um, respond to some questions and um, share our thoughts and ideas about those things. We've had some great feedback. Um, we've also recently had someone um, offer support. Yeah, we want to give a shout out to our uh, friend, peer, colleague, uh, Danielle at Weco Love. Um, she is sponsoring our podcast. We appreciate it so much. And Danielle is, um, she's an indigenous, uh, like beauty creator. So she has this really wonderful herbal spa line, beauty line, and it is called Weco. And her Instagram is Weco Love, W-E-C-O-L-O-V-E. And her, um, her website is also wecolove.com. So be sure to check out her offerings. She has um, these amazing bath bombs that mm-hmm. I love so much. And anytime, <laughs> anytime that I go on her website and shop, that's all I get is just like the bath bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also tried her muscle rubs and um, her bath soaks, like her salt baths and um, I've used oh, her, her oil. Yeah. I've used her lip balm. We oh, yeah, use, we use her, her oil, oil on a regular oil. basis. Her stuff is so good. I enjoy it so much. What I love so much about her products is that she really cares about reciprocity and um, her relationship with the plants that she uses. Um, and she creates relationships with the plants that she uses to create her products. So there is a degree of reciprocity honoring her ancestors. Um, she's an enrolled member of the Cherokee uh, nation, I think the Eastern Band of Cherokee natives and, um, yeah, I love her products so much. So thank you so much, Danny, for supporting our podcast. So appreciate it. Um, we are, uh, going to probably dive into some conversation today around, um, something that got brought up last night at the end of our live uh, we had someone, actually, I was having a conversation with uh, a friend of ours, uh, her name is Misty, and she sent in um, a voice note directly to me, otherwise we would totally share it on the podcast if it had come in that way, but it was more about a conversation around the idea of having to like stay in a hypervigilant state around protecting yourself and 
spiritually protecting yourself and feeling like you need to pray in a certain way to make sure you're connecting in the right way. And um, all of this like over, I'm going to say exaggerated way of interacting, even in a healing space or just in day-to-day living. And we've all had some experience with this and, and been with people who have felt like, you know, you've got to be hypervigilant about sealing yourself up and um, asking for protection against what they've called dark attack. And so the conversation kind of naturally flowed and we wanted to have that conversation here today and share our thoughts on, you know, what that's all about and the misconceptions that are there in it and even help connect dots with things that are very practical about us and why that stuff even happens to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. And probably other things too. <laughs> Wherever the conversation carries us. Mm-hmm. Are you going to say something about? I was thinking about um, our conversation last night and then overhearing the conversations this morning and remembering um, my first experiences with what now we would refer to as hygiene. And of course, just the same way, <laughs> a perfect example would be like brushing your teeth is considered dental hygiene. And there's many reasons for doing that, many reasons for keeping up with that or having a basic routine. Um, and it, all, it, all, it becomes like a self-care responsibility to having mouth health. (laughs) That's just an example. There are many other practices in hygiene, but spiritual hygiene or energetic hygiene has been a hot topic in our space and in our conversation. Um, And I think that it's also brought up a lot whenever it comes to the ways people adopt hygiene practices for themselves, not only in prayer. At first it may begin as ritual or they may be involved in some sort of training or getting information from practitioners or those who are leading them into places within themselves to cultivate that relationship with God, but then there's all kinds of things that come along with the teachings and along with the guidance, um, eventually where people are finding themselves more and more in that hypervigilant state, whenever they're considering things like spiritual attack, dark attack, psychic attack. Uh, What we're now realizing is more closely related to the nervous system and the collapsed state that comes from what happens in the nervous system and how it's interpreted as dark attack or uh, spiritual like interference, mm-hmm. which it is too. But I think what's perceived and personified as dark attack, spiritual attack, we're seeing so much more. And, and personally for ourselves, I can say, I say for myself, like bringing awareness to my nervous system helps to burn down and kind of mitigate all of the, misunderstanding really that I had around beings, darkness, uh, all kinds of spiritual interference, whether it's from different realms, different dimensions, or uh, I'm learning more about how to actually cultivate that spiritual hygiene for myself, even beyond the ritualistic, you know, waking up every day and praying or 
praying and making sure I seal my field before I go to bed or it's bringing more awareness into these practices. Um, kind of like what we talked about, what I've talked about before around my 12 step practices, which was like, I was doing all of these things and making sure I journal every day and making sure I reach out to all these different people and have conversations just to make sure I didn't relapse. Mm-hmm. It was the same kind of thing. It was like, eventually when I wasn't like relapsing, wasn't even on my radar anymore. I was just in the flow of doing these practices and they weren't always what I was called to do. It was more of like what somebody told me was best for me to do. And so translating that into spiritual practice is like, yes, praying is one thing, but when does it become ritual that's just disembodied or an afterthought mm-hmm. versus how it's actually effective in right. it becomes helping like, us regulate our nervous systems? Yeah, people treat it like a talisman or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like this, it's dogmatic. It actually, mm-hmm. the, the soul gets removed from it and the practice just starts to run our life. Um, and it's, it really comes from like fear. To me, it's like always fear-based. Like I have to do this just to make sure it's like knocking on wood. Whenever you say something that you hope doesn't happen to you, it's like superstition, you know, like Mm -hmm. using superstitious practice to try to keep yourself safe. And then if you miss it, you feel guilty about it or something. Yeah. And then you'll be sure that whatever happens that didn't go your way is like, oh, it's because I forgot to do blah, blah, blah. It's really interesting because I'm thinking about how I used to really compare myself to um, other people and their quantum uh, I guess rituals. And this is something that I used to talk about all the time too, because I was like, mm-hmm. I feel like I need to be better with my morning routine. I don't have a morning routine. And my best friend at the time had a very like strict morning routine. She would get up and she would like have her breakfast and coffee. And then she would like drop into the field and do like personal work and then grid work for like two hours in the morning. And I was like, am I like, am I lazy? <laughs> but it was like, the, the thing is, is that I tried doing that and it never made me feel embodied. So like I would get up in the morning and I would have my breakfast and my coffee and I would like go outside mm-hmm. and like work in my garden or I would go outside and have a walk or something like that. And that made me feel more embodied. And what I, what I'm recognizing now in this place that I'm at now in my life and in my practice and my work, um, in my being that, we need to do the things that make us feel more embodied, not because we feel obligated to do, to do them or we feel like we're unsafe if we don't do them. Mm-hmm. And I ask people when I have sessions with them, like I do ask them, I'm like, what are things that you enjoy doing that make you feel like alive or make you feel embodied or deeply connected to yourself? And lots of times people will be like journaling mm-hmm. or going for walks or things like that. And I do tell them, take time to do those things because those are the moments when you feel super activated or feel deeply connected to yourself. It makes you feel alive. It makes you feel rejuvenated. You know, you are are thrilled to be doing it. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you're taking time to do those things, but don't make it a chore. Right. right. Cause this yeah. becomes, it becomes a difference between structure, which is necessary and rigidity, which right. is well, a, a false structure. If you're just doing it habitually and there's no groundedness, there's no anchor in what you're doing. You're saying, a bunch of words that have no power to do anything for you anyway. You know what I mean? It's it. They're, they're lifeless. They're, they're not doing anything. They're stagnant, stagnant energy. So this is making me think, and I'm going to, I'm going to like pull the car over and stop on the side of the road here for a minute and say this really quick. Okay. because It's making me think about evaluating things like getting into spaces where you're wanting to anchor, you know, a safe space, 
and the things that we have walked through in the last year or so around like being very clear around Holy Mother, Holy Father, mm-hmm. that those things have to be spoken and said in order to be clear on what it is you're connecting with and all this stuff. Now, I don't, I don't have a challenge with anybody doing that. I just think we might want to evaluate that in our rigidity around it, that it needs to be, both need to be addressed. There was a time when I would get in space with people and I was like, if you said God and then you said the pronoun he, people, I literally had people gasp and be like, well, mother and father. And I'm just like, oh, okay. Let me make sure I'm saying it right. Oh my God, you know? It's like, um, it's that kind of thing that's like, I think we need to evaluate our practice and why we do what we do as much as what we're doing, you know, and is it coming from a place of fear? Is it, is it a place that's superstitious? That's like, Oh, I have to say both or it's a problem. You know, um, it's also making me think that we have to like reevaluate like dark mother and all this stuff. So I do recognize, I recognize that and acknowledge the nuance here because for me personally, like I don't want to like, you know, when I say my prayers, I don't pray to the universe or something like that because the universe is vast. There's so much in it, but I do go back and forth between, you know, God or, you know, mother, father, God, Mm -hmm. holy mother, holy father, you know, things Mm -hmm. like that. But the common denominator here, the commonality between all of those phrases is the intention that I have in my heart when I'm praying. And the reality of it is, is that mother, father, God are never separate. So saying them separate is almost like a formality because it's not really that necessary because they can't be separated. They're never separate ever. Mother, father, God is God in totality. And while yes, they do have distinct, you know, qualities about them with the masculine and feminine, they're never apart. They're never out of union. So when we call in Holy Mother, we're not, we're not getting just the Holy Mother. We're getting Mother, Father, God. The union. (laughs) Right. Right. And that's important because we just had this conversation. Mm -hmm. You were talking about your experience in all of this and this recognition of what we are, you know, acknowledging as divine feminine, divine masculine, Holy Mother, Holy Father. And you saying like, I'm having an experience, like I'm supposed to have an experience with the Holy Mother, and it's just like this, it's just me and the Holy Mother, and then I'm supposed to have an experience with the Holy Father, just me and the Holy Father. Mm-hmm. And it's so important to acknowledge these things, Danica. What you're saying specifically is that God cannot be separate from itself. Right. And we say that in all these other places, and then try to articulate, I have this one-on-one relationship with the Holy Mother. And I don't think that that's not possible, but what I think it does in, in the space of like, oh God, social media, where you're just conveying thoughts and there's not a lot of opportunity to really flesh these things out. It's like, it causes people who follow that um, line of thought to believe that they are to have a relationship just with the Holy Mother alone. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And it's like, we, we are still, we are still personifying God so right. much. But we want to compartmentalize it because exactly. that's what our minds do. But from a physics standpoint, I'm sorry, Bo, I'm just going to finish this thought that I'm done. From a physics standpoint, if God is plasmic intelligence, plasma is the form and the formless because it is matter that is formless. It has a structure. It has a structure to it, but it is also flowing. And that's what God's consciousness is. It is mm-hmm. plasma intelligence. Mm-hmm. So it is both. It can never be separated because you can't have just 
the structure of plasma, then it's no longer plasma. Mm -hmm. You can't have just the flow of the plasma because then it's chaos. It's no longer plasma. Mm -hmm. It's both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to bring the rest of the story into what we were talking about because you were exactly like I was sharing with a group that it was like, there were so many times that I tried to experience Holy Mother and Holy Father separately in these ways, because to be mothered and fathered by God was something that I recognized I really desired. And in that same breath was me being honest with myself about my experiences whenever I actually did feel the presence of God. And I look back at those moments and in those moments, there never was any like, this is Holy Mother or this is Holy Father. There was no, nothing in me that even cared to distinguish between the two or try to analyze what was going on. It was just like, no, this is God. Yeah, I think the beauty in acknowledging mother and father, and that, and I mean that whether you do that in your prayer or just have um, an awareness of those two attributes is exactly that, the attributes of God, the things about God. Some of them have been dismissed or they have been um, erroneously tacked on to this is what God is. And I think the beauty of that, what you're sharing is like getting that full experience of God, that God is both the nurturance and the structure and the, you know, the safety and the flow, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. God is all of these things. And that's what we're all longing for. Or we say we are, we're longing for the wholeness, that beautiful intertwined thing within us that is beautifully balanced and moving in complete harmony. We're saying that's what we want in our life. And then we spend our time being very specific. And like you said, Danica, compartmentalizing, you know, these pieces of God and ourselves. I wonder if, if people doing that is just like a a thing that they feel is normal for them because of maybe a dysfunctional, like earthly relationship with their own parents, because usually in dysfunctional relationships where you feel safe with one parent, but you don't with the other. You'd go to your father to talk about something like this, and you go to your mother to talk about something like this. Yep. I think that that's a good point because I'm all, I'm sitting here thinking like, dude, this is like an introductory class to like the coursework and shit that, <laughs> that we all do. But it's um exactly what you said, Kenna, is I think my experience with it too. Because more than anything – kind of personifying God helped me to understand the nature of my own trauma because I didn't have any reference point Mm -hmm. for what was true in my life. And even the things like I look back on my past romantic relationships. I look back on my past friendships. I look back on my relationships with my direct biological parents Mm -hmm. and everything that I thought was true love in all of those relationships, brotherhood, sisterhood, you name it, all these different relationships that we're actually wired for. I look back and I'm like, wow, until having this relationship with you, babe, it's like I had no experience of the truth of God until it came to me in an, in some level of embodied form. And every other experience that I had was not whole. Mm -hmm. There was love and there was desire. There was drive. There was a a deep uh, longing for connection, intimacy, even vulnerability, and to share myself with somebody else in all these different ways. But the structure was not like the foundation for that. Like Mm -hmm. my masculine energy, I mean, was so out of whack 
it wasn't even mm-hmm. really there. And that's, there are some new developments in understanding masculine and feminine energy for myself and how it's almost like whenever that divine masculine presence is not there, that really helps me understand like where I come from and perfect parallel in my life was like father was not really in the home and I had a stepdad that raised me and there were still things there that were very fundamentally lacking for me whenever it came to my relationship with my father. So it was like, that was how I viewed God. Mm-hmm. All of that was like mm-hmm. to be fathered by God really put into perspective and helped me see clearly the things. And there was a deep reckoning and deep reevaluation that has been years in the making mm-hmm. and years still to come uh, that I will be, or for years to come, I feel like I will still be seeing the truth of, those relationships. Yeah. I'm rethinking like so many things are flooding my mind right now of conversations I've had with other people, especially in session work where they have shared with me, you know, my first, my way back to God was I had to reestablish my my relationship with the Holy father or I had to reestablish my relationship with the Holy mother. I never even worked on my relationship with the Holy father. Again, just indicative of that, you know, compartmentalization, that separation Mm -hmm. and not understanding Mm -hmm. um, because of our need, like, you know, we're all saying to personify, and to use our earthly parents as a point of reference, right. you know, and how we relate to God, which is normal. I mean, we're human. That's what we do. We, we have to make things make sense to our mind, you know, in most cases. But I think it's really important. We're talking about this hypervigilant state. We're talking about, you know, becoming ritualistic in our practice and stuff and losing our connection with the essence of the thing, Danica, you said this before, and I completely resonate with it. And that is, it's not about the words that I say. It's about the understanding that I have with what it is specifically. It is my intention with what it is specifically that I'm connecting with. Mm-hmm. Um, that's anchoring me or moving in my space or doing any of that. Well, because it may, we may learn later that there, it's not the Holy mother or the Holy father or whatever, because words fail us all the time, you know? Right. (laughs) And I say this all the time in my coursework. I'm like, this is what I call it, but I don't know what it's called. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And I say that about a lot of different things, not just like God, but that's what, that's the word that we have right now. This is what I have right now to kind of describe it. So this is what I'm going to use, but I need, y'all to understand that this is not, this is probably not what it's really called, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because our, because our language is so limited, but I loved what you were talking about. And, um, that's something that I share in my coursework too, when I'm talking about trauma and lineal trauma, generational trauma, ancestral trauma, and then connecting with God, the dysfunction that we have with our mother and our father, our earthly mother and father is the same dysfunction that we're going to have when we're trying to connect with our cosmic mother and father. Right. Mm-hmm. It's going to reflect into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This so I guess we'll get back on the road <laughs> now that we've settled this. Um, now that we've opened this can of worms for everybody to sit and ponder while I listen to the podcast, um, coming back into the conversation around this hypervigilance and this need to constantly, you know, make sure you're praying and make sure you're shielding. That's another word that gets used a lot in the quantum mm-hmm. space, you know, shielding yourself so that you will be protected from dark attack. And, Danica and I were talking this morning and I said, you know, and we've said this before to each other for sure. And I don't know if we said it here in the podcast yet or not, but you know, the thing that makes us susceptible to what we call dark attack, which we're also going to get into is 
our disembodiment. It is literally not being in our body. Mm -hmm. um, because I've heard people conflate dark attack with psychic attack. They've used those things interchangeably. Well, where does psychic attack happen? It happens in our mind. It happens in the mental field. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the only way we can be attacked there is to be dwelling there, mm -hmm. which means we're just not in our body. Right. Well, sometimes psychic attack too is conflated with energetic attack, Ugh. you know, but it's like, how does our energy get attacked when there's holes in our energetic body and how are there holes in our energetic body? It's because we're in fear because we're in a hypervigilant state. Right. And then, but lots of times, is it really the actual spiritual or energetic attack or is it what we're calling dark attack is exhaustion from being in a hypervigilant state because yeah. hypervigilance actually causes adrenal fatigue. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was like, that's like me being in the, in the market around a bunch of Spanish speaking people, whenever I'm trying to learn how to speak Spanish and I'm not very confident in that. And then maybe I start feeling judged and this, ha this is a real time experience <laughs> just that just happened with it within the last week. So I went to the market and I was like, we were going there to get a specific product that you could only buy there. And it's like, okay, fine and dandy. But I started feeling so in insecure for a multitude of reasons uh, that are really my own things to deal with. But Jody was like, Hey, can we go get the Mexican Cokes from the market? And, uh, cause we love drinking those Mexican Cokes. And I was like, well, I don't really know. I, I felt really, really judged in there or whatever. <laughs> Do you hear this cat? Yeah. Yes. She's like, I want to be on the podcast. <laughs> me, me, it's about me. You're so cute. And that's you know, Beatrix, by the way. Yeah, that's <laughs> little Trixie. <laughs> Sorry, Bo, that we're, we're all interrupting you. We can <laughs> It's okay. I was just talking about the exhaustion because we ended up going, moving through the fears. Uh, dealing with the the wounds or whatever was creating <laughs> me feeling that way and showed up and of course want to do everything I can to uh, cooperate with the people if there's a language barrier and I wouldn't even say that there's necessarily a culture barrier there it's just like a language barrier and um, I'm willing to work on my Spanish yet I'm really uncomfortable doing it because you feel inferior. I feel inferior. Well, I feel pressure to like mm -hmm. perform or do it a certain way. And, um, but anyway, it was like, we got out of there and I was thinking, damn, how exhausting was that? Like how exhausting would it be to be feeling that way in a space all the time where you're not speaking like a native tongue or you're, you're not speaking like the majority tongue and you almost have to kind of like <clears throat> try to navigate all of the feelings plus the fears mm -hmm. plus putting in the effort to do something that if I was in a specific setting and I was trying to speak Spanish would not be as energetically taxing or demanding as being on spot during a uh, financial transaction, all of these other things that contribute energetically so much. And then just learning how to speak Spanish or learning how to even remember the Spanish and bring it forward in a coherent way that I know. And this is just one example. And I, I walked away from that thinking like, dude, if I had to do that all the time, I don't know if I would make it, you know, but didn't you find though, that once you kind of told them and that maybe this is what Jody told me that yes. once you told them you were practicing your Spanish, that they were so accommodating and they were welcoming you and trying to help you. Exactly. And so this is, this is a, this is a, <laughs> a uh, foundation of hypervigilance. This is like a, a tenet of hypervigilance hyper is that usually the threat is not external, it's internal. 
because what the pressure that you were feeling, everything that you were feeling was coming from an internal state and not actually Mm -hmm. a threat externally. That what is right. So I actually have a book here that I want to read a couple of, um, excerpts from just a couple of, uh, short paragraphs and the book, you may have heard me reference it in some of um, our previous episodes. It's called waking the tiger by Peter A. Levine. And this, it's really funny because I'm about halfway through the book, but last night I was reading about it and it was specifically talking about hypervigilance and I brought it to the table this morning. Um, well, I guess this afternoon for lunch and I was reading this excerpt out of it because it went perfectly with what we were talking about last night. And, um, so it says few symptoms provide more insight into a traumatic experience than hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is a direct and immediate manifestation of hyperarousal, which is the initial response to threat. And the four, um, the four basic symptoms of trauma are hyperarousal, constriction, dissociation, and helplessness. So, um, it's a direct and immediate manifestation of hyperarousal, which is the initial response to threat. Its effect on the orienting response is particularly debilitating, setting the traumatized individual up for an ongoing experience of fear, paralysis, and victimization. Hypervigilance occurs when the hyperarousal that accompanies the initial response to danger activates an amplified compulsive version of the orienting response. So then very natural orienting response then becomes kind of perverse and um, warped. So this distorted orienting response is so compelling that the individual feels utterly driven to identify the source of the threat, even though it is a response to internal arousal rather than anything sensed in the external environment. Hmm. So this, I feel like, applies very much to what we were talking about around the compulsory need to scan the fields and Mm -hmm. always shield yourself and always protect yourself and always pop in and drop in and make sure that your house is protected or that your light body is protected or, you know, that there's nothing lurking out and walking around your house or whatever, you know, all of this, uh, psychic stuff. This is a compulsory response to hyper vigilance. Mm -hmm. It is a bastardization of the very natural orienting response or reorienting response of the nervous system that's programmed by the reptilian brain. And so when there is a compulsion to consistently drop into the field, it is because the internal state is telling us that we are unsafe. It is a response in the nervous system. It's a response of a fried nervous system, basically. Totally fried. Totally fried. (laughs) Completely traumatized. And, um, yeah, I forgot where I was going with that. So a lot sorry. of the things that <laughs> no, no, no. just to follow up with what you're saying too, and piggyback on that is like a lot of the things in my experience that I have seen, uh, within my own field or in my own surroundings are things that I have never experienced before until going into that, that space of mm-hmm. prayer, or I need to check my field. I need to check my environment, my house, whatever from that detached like nerve uh dysregulated nervous system and the things that we see and experience and i'll say for myself but also there's been some times it's like pretty clear that the things that are experienced from that space are indeed like being projected or mm-hmm. even created on some way mm-hmm. well and here's the thing it's like making me also look over my life i told danica the other day a story about friends of mine from years ago who i spent lots of time with and um they're both police officers And the way we approached life was so vastly different because, of course, they had witnessed so much um, death and trauma and um, (laughs) all kinds of 
crime danger. in their life, danger, tons of danger. So they lived their regular life with their children in this hyper vigilant sense, always mm -hmm. like you always got to be ready for somebody to do some kind of crazy shit in your space, you know, and I'm like this little, you know, clueless civilian walking around, leaving my doors unlocked, God forbid, you know, but nothing had ever been taken from me. So, you know, which is the right way to live? You know, I, what is the way we want to live? And I realized after being in that relationship that I started changing my habits because I had spent so much time with them that I started thinking, oh, well, maybe there is all this danger out there. Maybe there is something that I need to be aware of. And looking at that and um, recognizing even this conversation right now in my own life, starting to live my life in a space, even this last year, where this conversation would come up and be like, we've got to keep ourselves sealed up. We've got to keep right. ourselves protected. And it was directly, as I look at it now, it was having to do with conversations we were having with certain people in our space where that was their hypervigilant practice. And because then we'd have evidence, and I'm using air quotes, evidence that that was necessary. And where is the evidence in our life coming from? Well, science would say that it's coming from the nervous system, which is constantly portraying whatever it is you're holding there. It is putting it out in your space. It was like I was this happy-go-lucky, probably disembodied person <laughs> until I had my first quantum session. And then all of a sudden, my energy was drained all the time. I was constantly under attack or dealing with some sort of thing that was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, just because like you're describing, it's like there were people in my space that could describe something new that I had never heard of before. And then all of a sudden it's like, I learned about my light body. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, now I'm being fed off of all <laughs> Dude, I'm like, I, I want to give it back. All right. Can, yeah. can I just like give this back and pretend like I can't not know now. So it's interesting because, um, I, and we were talking about this, you and I, Jody, the other night, because, um, when I tested out for my belt ring yeah. in Krav, um, there was a whole conversation that came up. And so when I was getting ready to test out for my next belt rank, Bo had asked me a question and I can't remember exactly how you posed it, but it was something along the lines of, do you ever walk around just kind of like imagining scenarios where you yeah. would fight somebody where you would need to defend yourself? Yeah. Like what would happen next if this happened? Like what would I do? Yeah. And so my answer was no. I said no because I don't want to walk around in fear all the time. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting that you asked that because I was just very, I was so strongly like, no, I don't, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to live in fear. Well, when I went to go to the seminar to test out, um, Moshe Katz, uh, Moshe Katz is the founder of IKI and he is based on Israel. So he flies in a couple times a year and does our test out, um, seminars for us. And, you know, Moshe lives in Israel. He lives in a war zone. Mm -hmm. He was describing to us how, um, you can't even like wait at the bus stop without somebody trying to like stab you or something like that. And, um, because he lives in constant discord between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there's a generational war that's still going on over there. Well, when he was telling us, um, he was like, you have to have situational awareness whenever you're out in public because there are crazy people out there that will try to hurt you if you are off 
guard basically Mm -hmm. and he was like when you're driving a vehicle you're looking in front of you you're using your peripheral you're checking your blind spots you're using your side mirrors you're using your rear view mirror and you you're looking around you 360 degrees and it's called being a defensive driver Mm -hmm. and you are in a hyper vigilant state when you're operating heavy machinery because you're trying to to you're trying to be safe you're looking out for poor drivers Mm -hmm. right He's like, but in those moments, it's not called hypervigilance. It's called situational awareness, right? He was like, but if you go out and you're in public and you're on guard, people tell you that you're hypervigilant. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, well, fuck. So, <laughs> so he was like, you want to have situational awareness. You want to scan the crowd that you're in to watch people's like, you know, body movements and things like that to make sure that you are safe all the time. And I'm like, okay, but if I'm in a big machine, of course, I'm going to be vigilant, right? right? Because I'm operating heavy machinery on a road where thousands of other people are also operating the same kind of heavy machinery. I was like, I do agree with certain aspects of, you know, not walking around, you know, with earbuds. And I don't, even when I go and run in my neighborhood or walk my dogs, I don't have earbuds in ever. I want to be able to listen for cars or to listen if there's a dog or some other animal coming up um, and rushing us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I always carry my phone with me. I'm never on my phone while I'm walking my dog. I'm always paying attention. And even when I'm in the airport or at the mall, I'm not on my phone. You know, I am watching the crowd, but I'm not in a fear state. And I think this is what's different because what he's describing is, and uh, we're, we're number four podcast in Israel right now, so I hope he doesn't listen. But... <laughs> But what he's describing is a fried nervous system from his situation, mm-hmm. his situational trauma that he has endured of living in a war zone. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that th- there's a nuance here that needs to be examined because I do believe in having situational awareness. But and it's so funny because I actually was talking to Kenna about this and she doesn't think that she's like super profound, but she is all the time. <laughs> she'll, she'll always be like, she just, ask, she just answers something just so off the cuff in such a brilliant way. And then she never thinks that she, it like is important, but it always is. <laughs> and I was like, what is it? I was like, what's the fine line between hypervigilance and situational awareness? And she just was like, eating food and her mouth was full. And she was just like, I think they come from different places. One comes from fear and one comes from, what did you say? Being smart or something like that. Just like knowing what to do. Yeah. And I think that, I, I think that this is so applicable too, because we can have situational awareness and we know what's going on around us and be vigilant and aware without being hyper vigilant and hyper aroused because i think that right there is the turning point where we go into a feeling of fear mm-hmm. I, I think it's it comes down to being responsive and not reactive Ugh, see you're so good <laughs> you're so good <laughs> yeah i know something like the back of your hand like crawl and someone comes at you then you can go to sleep you know <laughs> down but like if you don't know what you're doing and someone comes at you then you're like <laughs> and you mm-hmm. run out of stamina and then you get hurt and then you know it's just like the two yeah. things happening but he's yeah and so what Moshe was describing I felt like had to do with where he resides most mm-hmm. of the time you know mm-hmm. and I and I'm not saying that you know things that are terrible or atrocious don't happen here in the U.S. because right. they do. Um, and I know that some neighborhoods here are war zones. Um, I feel very lucky to live in a place where there's not a whole lot of crime, but there have been moments where I have felt unsafe and mm-hmm. I do experience and I can feel it in my body, even just thinking about it when the body goes into hyper arousal. Mm-hmm. 
But the difference is, is that I don't live in that hyper arousal all the time. And I don't want to train myself to live in hyper arousal all the time. Right. I don't want to feel unsafe if I am not dropping into the fields all the time. I don't want to feel unsafe if I'm walking out in the streets and not imagining every single scenario that could go down where I have to kick someone's ass. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that there's a fine line here. Like, yes, I will drop in when I feel the urge to, and I need to, but I'm not feeling the urge because I feel unsafe 100% of the time. Right. And yes, I will be out in public and I will think of, well, you know, if this person, if I feel an energetic threat from someone, like a man is following too close behind me or something oh, yeah. like that, I will take corrective measures <clears throat> to put myself in a position of safety and hope that it doesn't have to escalate to a point where I have to kick someone's ass. But that's the thing is like, I'm not living in a fear state because most of the time I do feel safe. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And that safety comes from God. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I, I've said this to people before because I had someone reach out to me one time and say, I'm just so worried. Like, I, I want to make sure I'm, you know, saying the right things when I pray over my child at night, they seem to have, you know, bad dreams and this and that. And, and I said, and they're like, can you write the words down for me to say? And I was like, no, because there are no loopholes with God. You're not going yeah. to misspeak. And God's like, Oh, got you there. You forgot <laughs> to say it just like this. And guess what? I'm not coming around tonight. You guys are on your own. You know, it's like, that's not how God treats us. That's how we've learned to treat each other. Mm -hmm. And that's how we've learned to believe that relationships are. We're always looking for the loophole and God doesn't hold us that way. So this hypervigilant state, it's like, it's so profound and so simple to actually just come back to the awareness that, oh, guess what, you guys, this is how our bodies are programmed because of trauma. Right. And because of our trauma, we get disembodied. And in that disembodied state, we are susceptible to what we would call dark attack or collapse or siphoning. But it's simply because our nervous system is wrecked. We are exhausted from the hypervigilance. Our body is fully depleted. And then when shit happens in our space, we're like, it's dark attack. I knew it. <laughs> it's like, no, baby, you need to heal. You know, you got to heal and come back into your body. Being embodied is the inoculation to all of that trauma and that quote unquote collapse and dark attack. And even if we're not looking at it from the standpoint, it's so interesting because one of the first things that I ever learned in quantum work was that dark entities come into your space by containing the same frequency resonance as the wounds that we have. Hello. So if somebody's getting dark attacked all the time, their wounds aren't healed. Their wounds aren't healed. And if someone is confessing that they have to be hyper aware because of dark attack, what they're telling you is I am not embodied. So yeah. let's pay attention to that. If you're with people that are constantly um, hyper vigilant in that way and are saying and teaching, this is how you have to be so that you can be safe. They're letting you know, I live my life in a disembodied way because I live in a hyper vigilant state and this happens to me. And if we're disembodied, we don't have a relationship with the self. And if we don't have a relationship with the self, we don't have a relationship with God. Yeah, and it's not its not making anybody bad for that. It's just like, we need to understand what that means, you guys. It's code. It's code for something. And it's not even like tricky. You know, this is not a mystery. We just have to become better students. And we start have to start looking at things with um, the lens of, I want to understand what that means. God is not a mystery the teachings that we're even talking about, this quantum stuff, it's not meant to be mysterious. It's literally meant to be understood. 
And we've been talking about this. And I even said today, um, somebody posted something about that they were going to be, they wanted to reestablish or resurrect that masculine um, energy in their body, that divine masculine energy. And the more that I look at this, the more that I understand about how our body works, about how our mind works, the more I'm convinced that a regulated nervous system is quite literally the divine masculine embodied. Yeah. Because it's that physical manifestation. Yeah. It's the physical manifestation of the masculine. It's like, we're looking for it everywhere. And we're like, it, it's safety and it's structure and it's this and it's that. And I'm like, well, if we're looking for safety and structure, there is a system in our body yeah. that regulates that because the one thing we're mm -hmm. all longing for is to feel safe. Mm -hmm. We're all longing for that. We want to find relationships that help us feel safe. We want to feel safe within ourselves. We don't want to be in that hypervigilant state. You know, I mean, some, some people get so thrown into hypervigilance that they don't even know how to come back right. Right. to an anchored space anymore. That becomes their new normal. And that's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so I just, you know, in the conversation, the, the comment that got made last night, it was like, yeah, it's our wholeness that protects us. It's our, it's bringing these pieces of ourselves back together and letting them come back into the body. And that does terrify people because mm -hmm. of how much trauma we've all endured. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it is that practice of letting the pieces of ourselves come back together. Mm. That's what is our protection. That's our shield. Do you think our shield. And this just popped into my head just now, but do you think that holiness has been misconstrued? Um, and it actually is sacred wholeness. Like, like when we talk about holy mother, father, God, it's like, Holy, like, it totally like could W H O L L Y, like holy. Yeah, it totally could be. In in my growing up, of course, the Bible is always my reference, but in the places in Scripture where it would talk about holy spaces or you know holy interaction, there was this thing that was conflated with the presence of God, specifically. So it was where people came into spaces and they interacted with what they called God, and they contributed that to being like this holy space. And really, what it was, it was an energetic exchange where there was um, there was a, a, a thing, I do believe, like coming back into the body. It did not disembody people. It actually like, gave them a real encounter of God. And um, specifically, I think about um, the story of Moses and the burning bush, because in that story, um, he was told to take his shoes off because he was standing on holy ground. But if you remember the story, the bush was on fire, but it was not being consumed, which is... <laughs> the very depiction of what plasma is. It's cold mm -hmm. plasma. It burns, but it doesn't consume. This is making mm -hmm. me think too. The <coughs> bush is, I, it's making me think of the way that the nervous system looks in the body. Like the mm -hmm. bush. Mm -hmm. Like all the limbs. Yes. And and things like yes. That. Like a, yeah, like that root system. Yeah. And so he was told in that space that that flame was speaking to him is what it says, that the voice came from the flame. <gasps> what if it wasn't a burning bush? What if it was a plasma body? Probably. That's what I'm saying. I, I think that it was, it was literally a plasmic body and he was seeing it. Well, in the story, you know, he's out in the wilderness. So he's like seeing this. Moses did some shrooms. <laughs> in, in my estimation, I, I feel like, yes, those things could actually be a better depicted in that like wholeness, you know, yeah. um, idea, because really that's what it is. The only thing that restores our plasmic body 
is wholeness mm-hmm. and learning what that means. I wanted to <clears throat> come back to something that was said earlier because we've been throwing the words out around spiritual hygiene. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to come back to that because um, we've heard it also said not as spiritual hygiene, but as like astral hygiene. And it was making me think, Danica, you shared that story about um, the person that you were friends with for so long getting up and having this ritual around getting in the field, constantly mm-hmm. getting in the field every single day and being in the field for two hours, whatever. And this whole idea around spiritual hygiene, I mean, things have been said, but people have been using things like shielding yourself, saying a, a prayer that's protective and all that. And they haven't used the word spiritual hygiene, but they, they're like, this is what you have to do every single day. You have to do it moment by moment. You've got to be so protected and all this. And I'm realizing like so much has been sucked out of that. Like so much life has been sucked out of that and people are doing it from a fear-based place, from a traumatized state, from a hypervigilant mm-hmm. state. And they're not really being able to invoke any kind of protection because they don't understand their protection is coming back into their body and not being lingering in the field and in those psychic realms all the time. Because what they're doing is they don't have good astral hygiene. And so it's like being over much in those mental spaces, in the mental field, in that psychological or psyche, you know, the psychic space really is what erodes our plasmic body. That is actually what poor astral hygiene is. Yeah. This is kind of what I was going to say earlier too is, like this is all uh, like, I guess one big picture too, with this hypervigilance, spiritual hygiene. Um, I was thinking about what you were saying earlier, Danica, about different scenarios, but then it led me like different scenarios out in public, for example, mm-hmm. and things to be hypervigilant about or to be vigilant about things to be aware of versus overcompensating and being in a fear response and being not in your body anymore. And then not only in public spaces, but like throughout the day, I think the difference is, well, for the first thing that I was thinking was like, the times that I have done harm in conversations, out in public, even in the crazy shit that I used to do in the wildlife that I lived, it was like, if I was driving, for example, and I decided to cut somebody off, or if I decided to have a road rage moment, which didn't happen often, I used to drink and drive a lot. So it was like, I would be really heavy on throttle and I would speed and I would drive fast or I'd run red lights and do all kinds of things. It wasn't that I got in my truck thinking I'm going to do all these things. It was literally in moments of disembodiment when I got hijacked and something moved through me and was doing those things. And I was completely unconscious, either suppressed or totally ejected from my body. And I think like, of course, there are compulsive serial uh, crime, crime committers. (laughs) There's like serial criminals and I have been a serial crime committer um, in, in the past and even now, not in that sort of extreme example, but in the times in conversation when I say something that probably shouldn't have been said or didn't need to be said or I shut down in subtle ways or I overcompensate in subtle ways and it ends up either creating confusion or causing harm or projecting something that needs to be acknowledged within myself. The difference between how I feel safe 
And what makes other people safe when they're around me is my presence being present. Like you said it earlier, babe, it's like being embodied is the number one surefire. Well, beginning, it, it, I wouldn't say it's surefire right away, but it's like the, the beginning to creating that safety within ourselves for ourselves, because I look back and I, I dissect and digest the moments where I have done harm in subtle ways, even the subtlest of ways. And it always came from whenever a wound is coming to the surface and I cannot be accountable for that wounding, I'm automatically susceptible to being hijacked and hijacked doesn't mean that I have to have a walk-in come in and like start living my life for me. Even though those things I guess happen to people, but it's a, a, a very subtle hijacking that happens and it completely overrides my pure intention. Mm-hmm. It completely overrides my own perception of my innocence mm-hmm. with guilt, it completely overlays it with guilt. And then I'm turned against myself. I'm disembodied. And then everyone around me is at risk of harm by my hand or my, my words. So this is happening in these public spaces. This is happening in, in private spaces as well. Mm-hmm where there are essences and energies and points of consciousness that are actively seeking openings Mm -hmm. or moments of vulnerability or susceptibility. And those people who are not in their fucking bodies, because as soon as those wounds are creating unconsciousness or dysregulation or disembodiment, Mm -hmm. they are able to infiltrate that space and start to literally puppeteer whatever vessel they're deciding to. I mean, this can happen to plants. This can happen to animals. It happens to people. Mm-hmm. And this is where the personality thing and like personal relationships starts to get confusing because whenever uh, we're having an issue with somebody, it's not their personality always. It's their accountability. You know, it's not necessarily that we don't like people all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are people that we like or don't like, I think, but, for myself, it's the people that I choose to spend more time with are the ones that I know I can trust. Well, and that trust is created from people that I know are going to be in their fucking bodies. Right, because there's a difference between um, knowing somebody will not cause you harm and knowing somebody can hold you. Mm. Like, there's a difference. Like, there's people that I can get in the same space with because I know that they're not gonna they're not gonna hurt me. There, it won't be a, a hurtful you know interaction. But then there are people that I you know, specifically spend time with because not only will they not hurt me, but they also got me like that. You know what I mean? And I just mean that from a space of like, there is safety there. You know, there's that anchor. Whenever we are like, they can hold it down. You know, they know how to hold it down. That's what we're talking about. That's what you're talking about. They know how to be in their body. They know how to be anchored. Because the other day, Kenna, you said something about an interaction that you had and you're like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. every time I have this conversation and it starts to get like this, this person oh. gets frazzled and it knocks me out of my body. And really what's happening is that dysregulated nervous system starts to trigger our nervous system and all the trauma that we've held. And it does, it yeah. does knock us out into that space of like, it's not safe here, you know, yeah. and it creates agitation. It creates, you know, um, like that irritability sometimes or whatever. And mm-hmm. parents have it with their kids. Like I know for me, when my kids would get sick, oh my gosh, my nervous system would get so out of whack. And it was, I didn't even know how to articulate it at the time. It would just make me so anxious because I knew that they weren't feeling good. 
And people will say things like, it just, it's, it's so hard to watch them be sick because I can't fix it. And really there's just a lot of fear there and the nervous systems are dysregulated and they're playing off of each other. And so mm. it creates this excitability, this hyper arousal, like Dana was talking about. So <clears throat> it's very interesting. Danica, you shared something earlier too. What the only thing is before I say that I'm thinking about hygiene and is there, are there things that we could share? Because coming into a practice of prayer or protection or whatever you want to call it, even if you feel like you need to shield yourself and Hey, sometimes you might want to like put some extra effort into creating some kind of shield around yourself energetically when you're going into spaces that, you know, there's a lot of disembodiment there. Um, you may want to do that because your nervous system can totally be triggered in that space. Um, I know Bo and I, in the summer, my mom had a stroke and she was in the hospital. And when we would get to the hospital, as soon as we would pull up into the parking lot, my body would start going crazy. And at the time I, I just was like, I knew it was energetic, but I could not articulate exactly what it was. And I was like, I can't be in this space. It's just so hard for me. You know, um, it is challenging for me to be in hospitals. There's so much more I understand about the space now, but I realized more than anything, it was triggering, um, trauma in my nervous system because I've never really been to the hospital and it not be yeah. because something dire was happening. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always something terrible is going on. I mean, aside from my children being born, but <clears throat> even that was stressful, you know, you're going cause you're in labor and it's like stress in the body. So it's not all, you know, rainbows and sunshine. There's a good outcome, but mostly you're going to the hospital to visit somebody cause they're sick. And, um, my nervous system just gets totally activated in that space in a way that's just like, I can feel the trauma in my body. So that reminds me of that, that, uh, reel that Kenny showed me. It was like me an empath walking into a hospital. <laughs> I sense these people are sick. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's funny. But, um, yeah. I was just wondering if there's like things that y'all feel like are valuable to share around having good spiritual hygiene or that astral hygiene you know, they're helpful to people not to become, you know, um, dogmatic or anything like that, but just a practice. Like we brush our teeth every day. I was wondering, I asked, would that just mean that the body is a shield? Because if you're saying people saying when they're praying, like shield me, blah, 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 would the body be a shield other than it being traumatized in its healed state? Would it just be a shield for your plasma body? You know what I mean? Because the only reason you ever want to leave it is because you're traumatized within it. So once you heal that. So like is the physical body a shield for the plasma body? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. I know God, obviously, but as like embodiment. I actually see the plasma body as the shield for the physical body. And they could be interchangeable, I guess. Probably some reciprocity there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just like yeah. the ribs are the protective cage for the heart and the lungs, you know, kind of yeah. thing. The structure. I think <clears throat> understanding shielding a little bit better too, because I always imagined until like the past couple of months, I always imagined like being surrounded by a bubble or even, even the pillar of light. Like that was super helpful for me. Um, anchoring a pillar of light through my physical body, a pillar of light through my light body for me, diamond plasma light. And that really helped so much. But even then, understanding the light body as a very specific formula of wave mechanics. Mm -hmm. It's if, if that structure is incorruptible, then 
we are immune to mm-hmm. infiltration. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're immune to any false structures. We're also immune to the breakdown of that structure. So I think to have a, uh, to have structure, but not rigidity right. around things like rituals, morning rituals, devotional rituals would yeah. be the thing that really hits the heart space because that heart space is the, basically the coherent anchor point. Like right. Danica calls it the fulcrum. It's like the center point of all of the movement of the true organic consciousness and how it's anchored into the body. And so if there is a devotional ritual, whether it is with music, it doesn't even always necessarily matter the kind of music. Sometimes it does because of course frequencies and stuff. But I remember I just, we recently in the last year and a half got back into some Christian music and stuff and, I don't subscribe to the religion, but there are some key moments in those songs and like old hymns and things that are like, Oh my God, this, mm-hmm. it doesn't even matter what they're saying. And we can know things about Yahweh matrix, Saturn matrix, the Jehovah, right. uh, like all these harvesting tanks and things that, that are a part of <laughs> like religion, but there is true devotional intention and pure principle coming through yeah. these people. And you can feel it and it can't be denied. And it, it's that thing that's like, I feel that way, mm-hmm. or I want to feel that way. Mm-hmm. And so I feel that with reggae music. I feel that with um, other kinds of like chanting and things that I was a part of before even coming in back into relationship with some of the Christian music. It was like, there's devotion happening and these people are singing about God. And it doesn't even always, like I said, doesn't really matter which God mm-hmm. as much as it matters. Like Danica said at the beginning of this conversation, like the intention, you can really feel that this person is just wanting to give themselves in totality to their source, to their creator. And I think there's a lot of debate about who or what that could be, or, you know, what's important in that sense. But what really matters, I think is the devotion because that's the thing that's like, that's the common ground. Mm-hmm. That's what holds the true consciousness, the law, the structure, whenever we come to that space. So I think um, having a devotional structure, having a devotional relation or ritual where you can, yeah, devotional practice where you can acknowledge that thing within you that truly does long for you, you to come home. Yeah. Cause like that's in each of us. And then, um, there were some other things, but I'll kind of open it up some more. I like that too, because it's making me think about um, my own journey this last year with just food, for instance, you know, it's like, I never, ever really took the time to even evaluate food for anything other than I'm hungry and I want to eat. And this is what I like, you know, mm. but then now being in this place of like, I want to eat food that actually gives nutrient to my body. And I want to be aware of what it is I'm consuming I'm still enjoying, I still enjoy food, but it's also like, I'm, I'm having some kind of reverence for food (laughs) now because I'm like, this actually adds something to my body, which my body needs. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's like brushing your teeth. You know, you could do it every day because it's become habitual and it's like, I know this is good for me. So I do it. But then if you have a cavity and you decide or figure out that you could actually heal that just with remineralizing your body or something like that, you start to get all excited about the practice of it because you are looking for, Mm -hmm. um, a result 
out of it kind of thing. Like you're looking for the healing out of it. Mm -hmm. And so it's making me think about that devotional practice that you're talking about, because I, I agree. I feel like what is it that helps like light you up and makes you feel connected to God? That's what we're trying to cultivate. That's what actually restores our plasma body is that feeling that experience of what God is and who God is. Mm -hmm. It's not out of fear of like, I need to do this or else I'm screwed because we're superstitious, you know? Another thing that's coming up that makes me like chuckle is the conversations that we were having whenever we were learning about like key nutrients and vitamins and mm -hmm. mineral minerals that our bodies actually needed, how separated we've been from that. And Shannon Morton, a good friend of ours actually helped us really understand uh, more about basics, fundamental basics of what keeps the cells ticking, mm -hmm. like at a molecular level, at an electric level. And <laughs> these basic um, minerals, calcium, potassium, magnesium, sodium, mm -hmm. those things are severely depleted in most people, especially in America, uh, where the food is so messed with and depleted, the soil, the water, yada, yada, yada. We were having experience where experiences where <laughs> we were, I think like last summer, especially last spring and last summer, 2021 was like, we would be in this place of like, I thought I shielded, you know, I thought I shielded myself. I went to the freaking grocery store. Why can't I even go to the grocery store? And we had this experience <laughs> countless times yeah. feeling like we weren't doing something right. And then all of a sudden it was understanding what salt can do for the nervous system or understanding what <laughs> calcium can do or, or in not only what those things can do for the nervous system, but what happens to our bodies whenever we don't have those things, <clears throat> right? What happens to our brain chemistry whenever we're not actually sustained at a physical, tangible level. And so we started to, <laughs> instead, of going, <laughs> instead of going straight into the place of like, this is spiritual attack. That person looked at me a certain way and I feel like so infiltrated right now, violated. Oh it's like, gosh. get a big pinch of salt in your mouth first. <laughs> Mm -hmm. see how you feel Drink in about two milk. minutes, Get right? Calcium regulated. Yeah. Drink a glass of milk or, you know, for vegans, you may even have a little bit more things to look at there. So it's, <laughs> it's like, just make sure you're, I think one of the biggest tools is <laughs> making sure that with your spiritual practice, you're really backing your body up Hello? with what Hello. Yes. you are trying to implement, you know, energetically. So, it's not only like having that devotional practice and like having prayer and stuff, but like for me, first thing in the morning before I even pray, <laughs> to be honest, I used to have a more um, structured morning, but I'm adding more structure to my morning now by getting out of bed, getting a pinch of salt, eating a banana and eating a raw egg yolk. And then my body is super chill. My body's like, yo, I'm good. And then once, once I eat, I'm like ready to connect with God and my body. I don't have to like, you know, it's like a, a baby that's crying and it's like, it wakes up in the morning and you can't go over there and be like, start praying over the baby. Start praying over the baby. Why haven't you stopped crying? I right now, God, God is asking you to come in and just settle the service. And the baby's you know? like, I'm fucking hungry. Exactly. It's like, I'm getting diaper rash, you fool. Holy Spirit, we just need you to come right now and just calm this Soon. body right now. <laughs> God's going, you need some food. Yeah. <laughs> you need some milk. <laughs> it's 
That's yeah. how my nervous system works. Yep. I, it took me like it. It felt like it took me an hour to come into my body. I had such a hard time even waking up and getting my eyes to like get with the program. Right. Uh, I'd be like, I just had nine hours of sleep or even more, you know, of course. And I know that that can make us feel exhausted, but I used to not. And then I used to be like, I must be getting attacked in my sleep. And, and the thing is, is that is a reality some of the time too. Right. There are times when I'm like totally, um, you know, nourished physically. And then it's easier for me to identify where else I am feeling disconnected or where else I'm lacking. Or if I do have things that have been coming up for me and how often are we feeling like shit? And we're like, why are we feeling like shit? And be like, well, let's look at our last week. What happened to us in our last week? And it's like, dude, all of these things changed. Or I had a, a conversation with this person. I reconnected with this person from my past, or I had no idea how these other things were affecting me. So when our body is actually, this was a big conversation and probably even mm -hmm. a bit. I think we even had some conversations in podcasts about these kinds of things. Like when our body is taken care of, then. Well, I, I wrote a post about it not too long ago. People making decisions in their life, big decisions or even small ones. And it's like the body's literally not nourished and you're having all of these chemical reactions in the body because it's depleted and then making decisions from that space because you think I have to make this decision right now. And it's like, actually, you just need some food mm -hmm. and you need to take a chill pill for a minute. Well, and that's the thing too about the nervous system is that if the nervous system is traumatized <clears throat> and it is living in a hypervigilant state or if it's, you know, curating your reality based on your trauma and then there is there's these elements of change the change is too much for your nervous system and your nervous system gets re-traumatized mm -hmm. over and over and over again you wanted to talk about practical things that people could do as far as like spiritual hygiene mm -hmm. and you said you said any you said any devotional mm -hmm. practice you know it's really it's really unique for people you know oh, I mean, prayer to be it dancing else, music whatever there could be anything that really helps people get back in their body mm -hmm. and I think this is kind of like what I was talking about earlier, where I ask people in their sessions, like, what is it that really like sets you on fire that you love to do? Mm -hmm. Journaling, mm -hmm. walking, hiking, singing, making music, mm -hmm. doing art, whatever. And I'm like, make time to do those things, <clears throat> but don't be about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. The don't turn it into a chore. Yes. Exactly what you're saying. And the, this is in my experience too, like something that Jody and I have been having conversations about. Baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've been having conversations about this because there is, on one hand, rigidity, which is a form of control that comes from feeling unsafe. So it's, all, it's just another coping mechanism. And something that we're realizing is that control is at the mm -hmm. core of all coping. And so there, it doesn't mean that all control is coping, but all coping is control. So there, there are ways to create consistency mm -hmm. and, and that consistency creates structure and the structure creates safety and the safety regulates your nervous system. Exactly. Because <laughs> whenever I first started, I, you know, we've taken all kinds of vitamins. We've tried different things, minerals, how to, how to have different foods. We've tried, um, you know, for example, tried taking ASEA, cellular redox mm -hmm. supplements, ion biome, all these different kinds of things that have different benefits, but, we were in such an experimental space of, I just have to find out what's going on. Mm -hmm. 
because it wasn't just a spiritual attack. We started to understand it's our nervous system. So how do we get our bodies what it needs? And with prayer, this is something that we're working on in coming together and praying together or, or having a meditation, a stillness practice, um, or even movement practices that get things moving. It's about, for me, being consistent. So diet is a perfect example. Um, whenever I give my morning routine of I wake up and the first thing that I do is A, B, C, and D. It wasn't even necessarily what the A, B, C, and D was. It was the times that I didn't do that. Because I would do it and I would tell my body. It's the communication and relationship that I have with myself. I would make a commitment to my body and I'd say, this is what I'm going to do for you. You know, we're going to figure this out together. I'm here for you. I do all these things to create safety and to build, to offer that trust to my body, mm -hmm. to my nervous system. And then the very next morning, sleep in. Which sleeping in is <coughs> harmful. Mm -hmm. But whenever we make an agreement with ourselves and we are the first ones to cross that boundary and break that mm -hmm. bridge of trust, mm -hmm. that's whenever we start causing harm because <laughs> sleeping in isn't a big deal. You know? I'm attacked right now. <laughs> this, is, this is something that I've been realizing within myself because I would get so frustrated for all these reasons that weren't the actual reason. Mm -hmm. I would wake up feeling like, why isn't my body, you know, like feeling okay? Why can't I sleep right? Why can't I yada, yada, yada? And then as soon as I chose one thing, which was the salt, I would wake up every single day. And this is for me personally, what has helped me. But I started to realize that as soon as I wake up, boom, my body is like feeling like so unmotivated or whatever it is. And if I get the salt, it like calms my body down right away. And so it was the one thing that I was like, okay, this I can do every single day. Mm -hmm. right after I wake up. And so as I did that, I would start to be like, oh, that gives me plenty of time in my body and my body starts to adjust with because of the consistency. Right. It creates trust within <laughs> ourselves. And if there are, uh, I start to build a new relationship with myself and that affects me spiritually because now I can be consistent with waking up, having my salt, my banana, my raw egg. And that's just before breakfast, you know, just yeah. fresh out of bed to get my body like, I got you. I got your back. Mm -hmm. Just how we want God to have our backs. You know, we have to like to put in that effort to fill in the, the spaces that, you know, it's not like we are a newborn baby and right. our, our parents are going to sit here and be like, Oh, you're crying. Okay. I'm coming to you right now. What do you need? Most of us are grown adults. Um, and there may be some kids and stuff looking kind of navigating that transitional period. But my point is, is that there's effort that we have to put in that Danica has talked about that you have talked about, babe, that we've talked about in podcasts <clears throat> prior to this one, putting in that effort of ourselves to cultivate that aspect of relationship. It's a two-way street. And spiritually, the same thing goes, is feeling like if we're not willing to put in uh, the effort to create some consistency in walking that pathway, it's going to start to be overgrown because God meets us there. Mm -hmm. There's a space, you know, God can navigate all kinds of different spaces, but with consent and with permissions, invitations, that's where God comes in. That's what devotion is. It's an offering plus an invitation. And we meet in that space. So the devotional practice um, isn't as effective as devotional practice consistently. Yeah, I love that you're saying that because what it's bringing up for me is like the love I do feel in those moments of being able to be in that space with God, that stillness or whatever it is that I decide to create. And it's like, 
it automatically removes any kind of feeling of, of constriction or rigidity that I have to do this in order to be okay. And it's more like of a longing of, I enjoy this time, you know, mm-hmm. and letting myself be in that space of like, I enjoy this. I actually really get a lot out of this. And yeah, man, this is just like, it's making me even feel, I was like, do I need to go to crop today? And I'm like, am I breaking this agreement with myself right now? <laughs> there was one thing that you said and you ended the sentence with it. And I was like, Oh, it's a perfect segue into some other things that you talked about from that book. And it was about, you're talking about the inability to learn mm-hmm. um, in a hypervigilant state and how the nervous system becomes um, basically rigid. Yeah. I've been sitting here thinking about this uh, in the last five minutes too. And I think this is why they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks when they're talking about like humans and why mm-hmm. kids are such good learners and there's a learning curve and why, adults are not because adults are more traumatized than children are. And when you're in a highly traumatized state, um, especially in a hypervigilant state, but just in a traumatized state, the nervous system is taking on too much and the mind is deeply connected to the nervous system. Mm. And you can't take on and absorb and integrate and assimilate new information whenever you're in a highly traumatized state because it's too much for your nervous system. So therefore you can't learn. And then you stay, this is what we call looping. You stay stuck in these patterns over and over and over again, because it's all you've ever known. And you can't take on new information, new behaviors, or Mm -hmm. even heed anybody's advice um, because your nervous system literally can't take it. It would shut down. Well, it would, it would also treat any kind of information that came to it as dangerous Mm -hmm. and as an assault. Right. on it so that you couldn't even be in a relationship where you could bring something that was constructive <clears throat> um, or offer some kind of like, you know, perspective on stuff that you were witnessing because that person in that traumatized state um, would likely reject yeah. that because their nervous system would be like, no, we do not compute this. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a personal attack. Right. This is also, um, yeah, this is making me think about, is making me think about a lot of things. This is making me think about why religion is dogmatic. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, people who get in that rigid state of oh, not wanting to accept any change. Um, but again, why adults have a hard time learning new things mm-hmm. um, because our nervous systems are in such disarray and dis- dysregulation. But children are more regulated until they learn to exist in a place of chronic dysregulation. Mm-hmm. So would you say that the more traumatized mm. you are, the more layered and complicated your, uh, I'm using air quotes, relationship with God or understanding of spiritual things would have to be? I think so, because people who are in a state of chronic dysregulation and chronic hypervigilance are looking for the threat that can't be found. And so they're trying to explain and come up with a, like an explanation for inexplicable experiences and this leads to dissociation and then hallucination is a part of that. And so I think that this has to do with like all of these, like, like I'm not saying all of them, but some of the, you know, complexities of visions and puzzle solving and things like that, um, that a lot of times people will experience in quantum art. What you were saying earlier about feeling like um, everything is an attack whenever new information or... Mm. New behaviors are coming into your space and you can't, you literally like cannot compute them. It's making me think of, um, 
cognitive dissonance. This is why people who adhere to something as if it were a dogma right. and so rigidity experience cognitive dissonance and um, they cannot tolerate even to the slightest degree any dissent with what they believe and um, or any constructive like critique or questions or challenge or anything like that regarding what they believe. That's believe, what cognitive yeah. dissonance Yeah, is. cognitive dissonance is, um, yeah, I don't know how to, let me, let, I know what it is, but I feel like I can't explain it right now because I've got so many things going in my head. But mm -hmm. it's basically where, let's see, the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, <laughs> especially is related to behavioral decisions and attitude change. So it's like if someone like we, for example, like contradicting yourself. Right. But we see this a lot with religion because people will hold so like strongly to their dogma right. that when evidence arises that they could assimilate this information and maybe adjust their stance a little bit because yeah. evidence is, is showing mm -hmm. that, you know, what you believe is probably uh, not all true, right. then they experience that cognitive dissonance where they go into that state of feeling attacked or, right. and it's the oh. same thing as like people, people <clears throat> identifying. We talked about this in one of our previous episodes, people identifying with their beliefs, right. you know, and, and that way, if someone challenges their beliefs, then they feel like they're being attacked as a human being. Right. Whenever really their our beliefs, we need to hold them loosely so that we can adjust them when necessary. Right. And because so our beliefs funny, are not the truth. No, they're not the truth. And you're saying this and I'm thinking, gosh, isn't it so funny that it's easy for us to recognize and call out cognitive dissonance in places like where people are arguing over body sovereignty and all the things that are happening in our world right now. Right. And like, you're so cognitively dissonant. You don't even know, you know, and I've seen people yeah. make that comment and I'm like, um, how about in the spiritual community, mm -hmm. the places where people would never suspect that there would be cognitive dissonance because there's too many words that are getting used that sound mm -hmm. kind of like it and sort of like it. And it's almost around it. And then it's like, no, there's an inability to actually take a step back and go, maybe I don't have all the pieces that I thought I had, you know, and that's because there's no integrity, no accountability, no responsibility. And in these spiritual communities, <clears throat> we don't identify it as cognitive dissonance because there's so many blurred lines and everything. And it's, it's because we're in spaces where anything goes because we're hyper tolerant in a lot of ways. Yes. It's almost like there is so much accountability and integrity, but then there are, those who choose to act outside of that and it like like muddies the whole water for everybody because then there's still people who like try to really like hold it down yeah but then they end up suffering at the hands of those who have just squirted a bunch of ink into the water and what i just yeah. said too there i feel like there's a there's a flip side to it what i just said is there's a lot of blurred lines because we're hyper tolerant of a lot of things i think there's also a lot of hard lines where there's rigidity what we were just talking mm, about right. where it's like that's false light and i don't you know what i mean like that's something that gets thrown around a lot it's like that's false mm -hmm. light as if they're incapable of experiencing false light but like we said we're consistently peeling back right. layers of false light over and over and over again just in this community Right. And within itself. So. Right. And I want to address this because it's coming up in me right now as we're saying this, because Bo, you said this to me the other day and you were like, do you think that we've been too rigid in stating that the truth is the truth and there's no variance in the truth? And I'm like, no, 
I don't. I don't believe that that is an example of being rigid because the truth just does not change. Right. You know, otherwise and, it's not the truth. Right. That's and literally contradictory. And the truth isn't projecting itself through rigidity. You know, the truth right. is coming into spaces where it's invited and saying, here's what this frequency, this, you know, um, energetic space holds and you're welcome into it. If you like, it's people who take, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. The rigidity happens whenever people are holding fast to what they believe the truth is. Right. And it's not the listen because the truth doesn't even do that to people. Right. That's what we said. Doesn't separate people like that. It's, it's not, that's why we've said like the truth and God, it's not this thing that's like necessarily all inclusive, but at the same time, it's not exclusive either. It's available to anyone who is willing to step into the space where truth exists, Yeah, right. which yes. requires a shedding of all the things that are not the truth. <laughs> it takes responsibility and accountability mm-hmm. and integrity. Mm-hmm. And just like you said, I think you described it exactly right. But whenever you said it's not inclusive, but it's also not exclusive. It's mm-hmm. available to everyone if you want to pull up your bootstraps and do the work. Yeah. 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 And like you, you said in some of your posts, babe, it's like if you want to speak about love as if you live by that, then live by the tenets that are basically required to live by whenever you're talking about love. Like love and truth, they can't really exist. Like the masculine and feminine, it's just like you talk about them, they're one and the same. And it's, it's something that I'm seeing is like, <clears throat> it is the compartmentalization of those things that actually brings trauma. It's, it's the separation. It is the attempt to separate them and define yeah. them. And, and I think that's it. This is taking me into another place too, about how factions get created and identity politics and all of this stuff. Because what I just said is like, it's available to everyone. If you want to pull your bootstraps up and do the work, but what we often see is people don't want to do the work and then they want to create their own little thing that makes them feel like they're in a safe place or a position of power or whatever. And they'll invite other people in and be like, Oh, it's totally inclusive or it's totally exclusive or whatever they want it to be. But it's manufactured and artificial. This is is making me think of like factions. This is making me think of all kinds, all kinds of things, identity politics. Mm -hmm. And, but the truth is available to anyone if you want to do the fucking work. Yeah. And all the work really boils down to is, knowing our wounds like know thyself know your wounds and don't identify with them (laughs) and you will be free of them uh you'll you'll be restored with your true identity and i think people not knowing what the work is and then they're confronted in a situation like we all are Mm -hmm. like the same way that the ego breaks down is you Mm -hmm. can't plan you can't go into a situation and be like I'm going to use this situation to break down part of my ego it hits you (laughs) whenever you like least expect it and that's the work and i think that's whenever our nervous system goes into the response. That's whenever it, it requires us to do things that the world can't offer us solution mm-hmm. in doing. Mm-hmm. It's like we have to do them beyond the world, beyond the support mm-hmm. systems of the world mm-hmm. to actually restore what is true. And when that is offered to somebody, the nervous system, if we can't navigate that whole quantum shit show right. that, that happens in those moments, that's true work. And I think, that the denial of that being the true work or I'll say for myself is like the times that I've been like, no, I don't have to do that. I can get to God another way. And I've gone and I've walked that path. I've, 
I've dove into new waters mm -hmm. in, you know, rejection of what somebody was like, this is how you get there. And I was like, I think I can get there some other kind of way. I think I'll take a plane, right? I'm seeing this jungle and I'm like, mm, no, I'm going to try the boat. And I go try the boat and it's like, boom, it leads me back to the same shoreline with the jungle and everything. I'm like, right. damn, that thing that I literally rejected and went and go tried something completely different led me right back here. You shall not bypass. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I watch people in the pro metabolic community who talk all the time about everybody looking for a hack. Yeah. Oh, I hack the situation. I want to like, sh I want to do it quick. What's the quick way? Um, <clears throat> have you even had conversation with Shannon and she said things like, you know, people will come to me for a quick fix. And she's like, when they come to me that way and I, and I'm having an interaction with them and their body and they want a quick fix. I'm like, you need to go the medical route because you're actually just looking to stifle your symptom, right? Exactly. You're not looking for root cause healing. And that's what we're here for, whether it's in the body or in the subtle layers of the body. This is why all of that mind work doesn't work because it's a hack. It's a it doesn't, hack. Yeah. It's a it's a logical what I call a logical override. Right. It gives you a mental override, but it doesn't actually address the systemic cause. And, exactly. And being in a body actually being embodied almost limits us to the laws that govern time because to bypass time. This is why patience is a virtue, but it's only a virtue because we're in a body. It's that our body lives by these laws and it takes time to process everything that does happen instantaneously at a quantum level. So what would you say the work is? Because I want to give people something tangible to walk away <clears throat> with. So know your wounds, don't live in your wounds, recognize when your wounds are being triggered, learn your patterns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, be comfortable in the body. The work is is being accountable for mm -hmm. your wounding. Like yeah, right. it, more than just knowing what it is, once you recognize it, being accountable for the ways that those things show up in you for the purpose of changing it. Like yes. intentionally wanting to change that reaction, that response, or the way it makes you feel so that you can make your body safe again. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. yeah, I think I'm having a realization actually. Of Beatrix. <laughs> You two Beatrix? Um, which I feel like this actually kind of goes into the nervous system stuff and what Danica was reading earlier and what you guys just said just now. Because I'm gonna try and articulate this and be clear. But we got, we've actually, me and you mom have had conversations about how like in <laughs> Beatrix, she wants us to come down. Beatrix, no. <laughs> We've had conversations about how, like, we'll be having a really good experience or a really good conversation or something amazing is happening and it's really light and fun. And then we'll think, oh, this isn't going to last. And it's, and it like completely jars you and it makes you feel like something bad's going to happen is going to take this away from me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was realizing as y'all were talking the other freaking night when we were singing. And I got all emotional because a wound was triggered in quotes, a wound, my trauma gift. <laughs> <clears throat> I had had, it was right when we were, when we got the entire thing together and we started singing acapella, I started feeling like emotional as I started like wanting to cry because it was so beautiful to me. And I like took myself out of that feeling. Because I was like, 
completely shocked me. Like, this isn't going to last. Like, it, it completely jarred my system because, and I took this now, taking that realization that as long as I can remember in my life, if there was anything good happening, it was going to be taken away. And I realized that now that in that moment, I was having that really amazing experience and I thought it was going to be taken away. And then later that night, I had been affected by something that happened. It wasn't when y'all's, y'all did anything to me. I just created that for myself that the night was going to go to shit. And I got triggered because I felt stupid for doing something that I thought I should get done right. That was the whole experience. But in hindsight, looking back at that now, I had created a whole thing because my nervous system was trained to expect that a good thing was not going to last. Mm-hmm. And that, that negative thing showing up and proving you right, right. is to protect you, you know, because it's to like, expect something yeah, and not be taken off guard. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's like, even that, what you're describing, many, many people go through it. I, I go through it all the time. It's that, the nature of self-sabotage. Yeah. And it's like that living your life, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Right. And <clears throat> they actually talk about this in um, nervous system work. Because they're like, the nervous system actually has a program like that. And it, it actually does um, run in lots of people where it's like, they're afraid to let things be too good because they've had the experience so much of things falling to shit and waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the thing about it is, is that our nervous system will prove us right because it's trying to keep us safe. It's like, don't enjoy things too much because we know by practice, they always go to shit. So let's just go ahead and create chaos now so we can get you out of this situation. You stop having a good experience and expecting that it's going to last because we know it's not. And that's going to disappoint you. So literally our nervous system is doing everything it can to protect us, but it is uneducated. It is only educated to the extent of our trauma. This is why control is at the core. Yeah. And then it creates that self-fulfilling prophecy. And then it's like, see, I told you. Yeah. I told you this is what yeah. happened. Yeah. And then and, and, the whole- and that day I wasn't even registering, oh, that was a trauma response. <laughs> I was just thinking the deepest I could go at that point in time was this is a wound that I've experienced many times before where I feel right. stupid. Right. But seeing it now, it was a whole even deeper than that. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be reprogrammed if the nervous system is available for mm-hmm. the programming. So it can be rewired. This is what creates our core beliefs too. Right. Yeah, this is core belief formation. Yeah, yeah. Identity formation. Yeah, yeah. Wild. Mm-hmm. So that's also the true work. <laughs> is right. You just proving your wounds right wrong. Here right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is how you do it. You know, it's really you know. Yeah. There's many times when we have to walk through things that seem so challenging and so difficult. There's been times I have avoided things because of the emotion of it. Like I could feel the emotion in my body. And I'm like, I don't want to go there because I know if I start crying, I'm not going to stop, you know, or I'm just, I'm going to hyperventilate or, you know, it's like so deep in there. Yeah. And that again is another way that makes us feel unsafe. So it's like even letting ourselves acknowledge the wounding and then go through the process of alchemizing the wound by feeling it and mm-hmm. moving through it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And really it's just the body's way of releasing the trauma, yeah. you know? If, so If we can create, some consistency in our lives with the things that our body is asking us for. If we can learn how to honor those subtle moments, 
where things may change, things may feel different. Like Danica, you said talking about crop is like I don't know what commit you, what commitment you made with yourself. Well, um, I have already paid for the month, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so I want to do it because I enjoy it, and it's you know it's important to me. But then I was like having so much fun doing this, and I was like, do I really want to go to crop? I was like, you know, thinking to myself, we could just sit here and do this all night. Right. And you said that, and I felt attacked, <laughs> and I was like. Trigger! I need to go to Prague. I keep my agreements with myself so that I'm not living in self betrayal. Yeah, and I think that that's a perfect example because the sleeping in thing for myself too was another one. Yeah, where it's like, I know that's another one for me. It's like, where did I create the need to sleep in, if at all? You know, because I'll be like, I need to sleep in. Or I didn't get enough sleep. And there are some times it's just like, yeah, I just didn't sleep well last night. Or it will be like, I went to bed at 2 o'clock and I knew I had to get up today or whatever it is. And I think with the Krav thing, it's like, yes, you want to go to Krav and you make a, an even deeper level commitment with your with your body of like, tell me what you need. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, I'll be here to support you in what you need. Even if we've made prearranged commitments, even if we've made plans. Well, that makes me feel better. Yeah, but do you, but <laughs> do you like also doing... think that even creating that consistency and that safety for yourself includes being flexible with yourself when you feel like you need something else? I think that's what he's saying. Yeah. Right? Is that what, that's what mm-hmm. you're conveying? Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> you don't push through when everybody's saying, I can't go to cross tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or okay. I'd rather yeah. do this. It's like, okay, I hear you. Yeah. I honor yeah. you. I trust you. And there are times when it's like you make a commitment to have certain structures. Like for me with the bananas in the morning, it's the salt and the banana. It's like <laughs> I can't sit here and be like, well, I went to bed late and I'm not going to get out of bed. Or I'm going to get on my phone instead first thing in the morning instead of doing mm-hmm. the things that I say because I'm tired. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, you know, I think I need more sleep. And it's like. Even though I can justify why I want to stay in bed, I'm really not honoring what my body needs right here, right now. It's like holding your pee, you know. Like, <laughs> Which I've been doing for the last 20 minutes. Oh my God, that's <laughs> so bad. Pause, let Danica go to the restroom. So, we are back from our pee break. <laughs> and... I think we were getting to a space of well, we were just double triple clarifying on a few things that we had already talked about um, talking about creating safety for the body doing the work what is the work doing the work what is the work giving some examples being consistent honoring the agreements that we make with ourselves in our own bodies because babe like you said the masculine energy is re- represented by the nervous system i really do feel that way i mean the more i consider it i just feel like a regulated nervous system must be the manifestation of that masculine thing that we're calling divine masculine well i think so too because a regulated nervous system creates the structure for your whole reality right, right. and so when our masculine energy is not anchored in something that in a way that provides safety for us, then our feminine essence moves in a way to create structure for itself. Because at the core of all inverted masculine energy is just the feminine essence that doesn't feel safe 
and has gone into the coping mechanism of creating its own structure. So it shows up either by a crumbling masculinity or a, a lack of masculinity and the inversion in masculinity that shows up in that way or an overcompensation for not feeling safe. Mm-hmm. The feminine overcompensating and showing up as authoritarian, oppressive, tyrannical, masculine energy. So there is no inversion of the mass of like a direct inversion of the masculine. There right. is only divine masculine and the absence of it is the feminine creating a masculine, a masculine construct, <laughs> which is oppressive. That makes herself feel safe. Right. Mm. So there's lots to chew on here. Yeah. We're going to have to do a whole other podcast on this. <laughs> yeah, well, this is, this is also like some of the newest developments in some of our class material. This is, I'm working with a men's group on this exact thing right now and breaking these things down, really chewing them, digesting them, looking at how this false masculinity, this false safety, and these agreements are <clears throat> manufactured or carried out and embodied within ourselves uh, as men being the embodied masculine energy. And of course, having that feminine energy too, just like women have masculine and feminine energy as well. But looking at it in the men's group has been very insightful whenever it comes to looking at the ways that we break those agreements and those, you know, yeah, how we create safety for ourselves. Like, where do we bypass that? Where do we breach those agreements? And like we've talked about in that group as well, I will share here, which is why I said this is this podcast is literally like an introductory to like some of our classwork and stuff. But um, mm-hmm. another thing that we bring up in that space is that masculine energy is reliable. It is trustworthy. It is something that is stable because we can put our faith in it representing itself and coming through and behaving a certain way. So false masculinity is still reliable. It's still trustworthy, but it's in the way that we were just talking about whenever it comes to core wounding. Mm. Whenever our nervous system tells a story, it's relying on what it knows to be true or what it feels to be true mm-hmm. and those harms that have been done, those traumas and the abuse that has been manufactured, that false masculinity shows up as reliability in that, which is fallible. Right. Or it's almost like we begin to trust even more in things that have broken us down right. yeah. and things that have traumatized us. So are you saying that masculine essence or the masculine principle are the patterns of our life? I think like what Danica said is that divine masculine essence creates safety. Right. So that can be represented in patterns of our life that create safety. Right. That's why, that's what I'm asking. Like, would you just say that that masculine essence, the principle of masculinity is found in patternistic behavior, whether it's to be, you know, safe or to be unsafe. You know, the thing that you're saying is like, it's always reliable. Like I always know what to expect. Those patterns become the structures that our body can rely on. I mean, a perfect example is something that was kind of flying under the radar whenever it was posed to the men's group was like, what are some things that create structure in our lives? And a big one that I didn't see coming whenever I started to look for myself were bills, payments that I make and, um, my phone 
because so many things that naturally our bodies would rely on to hold ourselves to a structure of time, circadian rhythms and things, those things are actually bypassed and we set alarms on our phones. We have calendars on our phones that we are completely <laughs> all in the same space and the bills, for example, the first of the month in the United States and maybe across the world. But for example, here in our lives, like the first of the month represents a time mm -hmm. that all of these things seem to be structured around mm -hmm. and we live our lives according to that structure, even though paying bills is not what I would call an organic, mm -hmm. uh, structure right it's a manufactured structure yet it is a structure still nonetheless mm -hmm. and masculine or feminine how we kind of break that down is i guess for each of us in our own journeys to really interpret for ourselves but i think one of the things that we've been chewing up and digesting was that there either is masculine energy because that masculine energy creates safety or there is the feminine energy trying to create safety for itself which shows up as inverted masculine because the, the topic of conversation was that the feminine energy in its invert it's in its coping is at the core of all uh, inverted masculine and feminine. Hmm. It's like, and it just says, this has, you know, this has such deep and massive implications because this means that topic. I'm just thinking about, Artificial intelligence. Yeah, well, I'm thinking about just what people call the patriarchy. I'm thinking about right. the patriarchy, and then if this is right. if what we're kind of like teasing apart, as Colin Courtney likes to say, teasing it apart. <laughs> if it if if it comes to have like truth, um, if it if it comes to be truth with a capital T, like unchanging truth, okay. mm -hmm. then that would mean that women are fighting against themselves. When it comes to like the, I mean, and really, yes, and I can, I can see that in a lot of ways, but just like what a massive statement that is when it comes to like what the patriarchy is and exactly. the patriarchal structure that was built, how was it built? And, well, and, and I do recognize well, that there's a reason why modern, modern feminism is called feminazi because they I'm not saying all of them, but a lot of women who subscribe to modern feminism do carry this trait of hypermasculinity. And um, exactly, men and women, this is a huge, like, it, oh my gosh, whole and, other. And also, okay. now, <laughs> like, maybe is, we just yeah. like, like, drop this and start a new recording. Final thoughts. And just be like, yeah, what are our final thoughts? And we're going to do part two of this recording. Final okay. thoughts, because listening to these, people will have to sit on this for a week. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and we, we are can, about to stir the pot. We can stop and start if <laughs> we're we We're going to tease it apart in real time. Um, just as Danica said, we see women behaving in a way, trying to create structure and safety for themselves because that masculine energy or the embodiment of the masculine energy has been so lacking in their lives, right? And I don't necessarily think that this is an all-encompassing blanket statement, but it is definitely a majority trajectory and energetic dynamic that's created, at least in the United States. But on the other side of that, men having masculine and feminine energy as well have been so disembodied from their core structure Mm -hmm. from their father, their holy father, and the thing that lets them know where they belong, 
and how to create safety for themselves also have that feminine energy within them doing everything that it can to find the next structure that's going to be able to hold it, which is why men predominantly in the United States <coughs> are serving systems that have kept them enslaved. Mm. And their trauma, the, the trauma of the masculine energy, not just men, but the trauma of the masculine energy in men and women have built this world. Because that trauma have, has completely disembodied the masculine from its true purpose and it's allowed false structures to take its place. Well, and this makes sense too when we're talking about how we come into relationship with God because I know that they are inseparable and indivisible. But wouldn't you say that we can't come to the mother but by through the father? <clears throat> because the father is the structure that holds the mother, right? Right. So, <laughs> exactly. that was the beginning of that topic was talking about. So there's a few things here. There's looking at divine masculine or the masculine energy in its whole form or not at all. Right. Or like what we see as inverted masculine actually being what I'm suggesting is that it is the feminine energy that's trying to create structure for itself. All the ways that this shows up in men and women. Okay. And the masculine informing and driving that feminine essence on where it's going to go, what it needs to do, and the feminine's desire to submit or receive or surrender to that, but also the only thing that informs the masculine energy being the feminine's needs. So the absence of God is what has created this void where the trauma of masculine men and masculine women had to step up to try to create structure because there was no structure. Right. And the trauma. So, oh, oh my God. There's so much here. The absence, right. the absence of God is what created the void. But that's, in, but that equals, that equals disembodiment though, because embodiment right. is what, what regulates the nervous system. And if the nervous system is the masculine, so this is an embodiment issue. <laughs> because because we yeah. can't reach God except for through embodiment. Right. It's also making me think you just said it, and I don't know what it was about what you just said, but I was like, oh my gosh, we we're talking about the structure of the Taurus and mm -hmm. the um the uh, vortex that happens through the center point of the body. The masculine is the one that steers. Because you said the masculine cannot even respond unless it is aware of the needs of the fit. Like it is, right. they're so linked. They are interchangeable. Right. But if the masculine is collapsed, there is nothing to steer the energy. Therefore, it becomes completely fractionated. It doesn't have a center point of anchor. So it becomes fractionated and it goes all over the place. Which, it is everywhere. Exactly. Which is chaos. In that same breath, it's chaos in one form, false structure in another. And this is the birthplace of artificial intelligence. Right. And with that, we're going to leave you with this episode. Tune in next week. 